God helps those who help themselves is perhaps the most unbiblical phrase that many people believe is in the Bible. Um, it's a famous line from Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, written in the mid-18th century, though some people argue that he just borrowed it and it was much older than that. Um, and, and it seems to have the idea that if you are having a trouble, a problem, a difficulty, a suffering, God is there waiting for you to start. And when you start dealing with your own problem, then God will come along and help you. And this is the exact opposite of who God is. Uh, He is inclined towards, he is loving towards those who are unable to help themselves. In Matthew 9.36, we read, Jesus saw the crowds. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. There, There is nothing more helpless and unable to do anything than sheep, right? Or Paul, reflecting on this in a theological sense, in Romans 5, verse 6, says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for those who were fixing themselves up. And we're getting a little bit better. He died for us when we were his enemies. God helps the weak. God loves the weak. And spoiler, that's the end of this psalm. The psalm ends with the important phrase, the Lord helps and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Not because they're the, more, they're the better ones, not because they've figured things out, but because they go to him and say, help us, O Lord. Today, we're gonna see how in our times of perceived weakness, compared to the perceived strength of the ungodly. That instead of helping ourselves, we are to wait on God and do what he tells us to do as he will fulfill his promises. Uh, This is, as I said, part two of a psalm that I started in September. It's it's a 40 verses psalm, so bing K, good job. You got through the whole long thing. There's there's a lot there. Thank you. Um, And I said, hey, I couldn't get through the whole thing because there was just too much to unpack in that. And as we went through this, we started and got through the first part. If you're taking notes, you can see the five lessons to shift your focus when the world's not as it should be. When, it, when you perceive that those who are helping themselves are helping themselves to all the good things and they are abusing all the people who are waiting. You're, they're, they're taking advantage of those who are trusting God. And so... How do we shift our focus to see what's really going on? The the first 11 verses was about shifting your, or, or schooling your desires. Teach yourself to desire what God desires. The famous verse of 37 verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We talked about what this means that when we see what God wants for us, then he will give us the right things. When we desire what he wants, we'll see that he's already giving them to us. Secondly, we saw the need to highlight the comparisons in verses 12 through 22, because he said, notice, notice what happens to those who seem to be really good right now, but where will they end up? They will end up gone and dispersed, and he's going to come back to this point. Versus the righteous are upheld by God. Look at that exult and then it should make us only have pity 
on those who have success in their unbelief right now. They might seem like they have everything they want, but we pity them because we know that will not end well. Today, in part two, we're going to get to points three, four, and five. Uh, And in verses 23 through 29, we see the command to, in his hands, place your hope. In his hands, place your hope. Read along with me. Psalm 37, verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verses 23 through 29, in his hands, place your hope. See, David knows very well what it looks like in both good times and in bad. He's beginning this section in saying how we should trust in the Lord. That if we trust in the Lord, he upholds and affirms the steps of those who delight in his way. David could compare himself to Saul. Right? The, the king who came before him, who started off really good, but did not delight in God's ways. He delighted in the praise of man. And so he lied and cheated and broke God's commandments and then made excuses for it. And so God cut him off as king and replaced him with David. He, he noticed that. He's like, God has a way of ending it. He said, instead, be God's type of king. Do God's ways. And yet David also knew tough times. Verse 24, Though this righteous man fall, he will not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. If you think about falling, there are many different ways to fall, right? Right? There are big falls and there are small falls. There are accidental falls and there are stupid falls um, where you're like, yeah, you kind of had that coming. Darwin Award right there. And, and this is a question people argue, is this falling in suffering, like something bad happens to him, or is it falling in sin? Here, I would probably say, based on the context, it's probably David falling to his own sin. If you flip a page to Psalm 38, Psalm 38, verse 17 and 18, he says, For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongly. This is a psalm about David's not wanting to be rebuked in God's anger. And and he uses those words iniquity and sin to just talk about his general failings. Maybe he's specifically issues. Maybe it's general, but I think it's more like he's a sinner and he knows that he needs to just confess his sin. He makes no excuses. He simply says, I have done wrong. I am a sinner. I have done wrong. Please, Lord, forgive me because there are people after me because of this. Coming right after that, I suspect he's reflecting on that right here. He's like, Christians, Old Testament saints at that time, 
are going to sin. They are going to make mistakes. But David wasn't destroyed. Even in his greatest sin, adultery of Bathsheba, murder of Uriah, he confessed. And though he had to live with some of the consequences, he wasn't ultimately destroyed. The, the great defender of the Christian faith in the 20th century. His name was J. Gresham Machen. He was famous for looking at the liberals and saying, no, this is what the Bible says. And he wrote, Christianity is the religion of a broken heart. No humble Christian tires of confessing that he or she has strayed from the narrow road and needs to turn back to God. Self-consciousness of sin never ends. David's looking and saying, well, the steps of a righteous man are established. He will fall, but he will not come to an end. Verse 25 gives a look of what, what that would look like in the life of the people of Israel. Verse 25 says, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. I had someone come to me once on a Wednesday night when we were teaching through the issue of poverty, and bring up this verse and said, my family would always say, whenever we were driving by and we saw a homeless person on the side of the street, or we saw one of those people who had kids who were begging for it, and he'd go, Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. See, those people are unrighteous people. They are wicked, and that is why they are begging for bread. Now, that is not correct interpretation of this passage. One, this is wisdom. Notice the phrase, I have been young and now I am old. This is a statement of observation over many years, much like the book of Proverbs. And you have to be careful when you interpret the book of Proverbs because they give observations about the world. But also we need to remember what the time David is speaking in and what the Bible says about poverty. See, even coming right after this, he's saying the righteous may trip, but, but they're not going to fall forever. It might be a long while of falling. There might be a great time of difficulty, but they won't be forever. Now, Scripture gives various reasons people are poor. I'm going to highlight three of them I think are, are true. Um, you can see them listed up there, but let me say them. Though there's three. First off, there is living unwise or sinful lives. Proverbs 21, 17, so whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. If you, if you give yourself in to licentiousness, if you live for hedonism, guess what? You're gonna find yourself lacking. And there's also though the problem of not just our own sin, there are other people who are sinners. We live with sinners. Sinful people hurt others. Proverbs 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would deal much food, but it is swept away through injustice. The poor man should be able to produce food, but injustice, wicked people come in and prevent that. And third, we have just living in a sinful and broken world. There's famine and problems. Genesis 45, 11 God says, I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come. I'm sorry, this is, um, th this is uh, Joseph saying to his brothers. 
so that you and your house and all you have do not come to poverty. Famine brings poverty. There's problems in this broken world because of sin that leads to that. So God spoke to Israel and said, in light of the problems of poverty in our world, how should we respond to this? Well, it was supposed to be an act of obedience to care for the poor. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 4 and 5, God is describing and telling the nation of Israel how they should live. And he said, There will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. Deuteronomy 15, 4 and, four and 5 says that. There will be no poor. And Jesus kind of quotes from this section in Matthew 26 saying, the poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. Remember that moment in the upper, when, when oil is being poured on his feet? And so he's actually quoting from just a few verses later in Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, there will be no poor. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. You catch that? The whole point is that since there are poor people always around, Israel is commanded to give to them so that they're no longer poor and needy. It is the obedience of others that help a poor brother that he should be able to come out of poverty. God would help his people through others. David's speaking at this time in Israel in one of the golden eras when they are supposed to be doing this and he sees people honoring God correctly. He will preserve his people through kindness. It's often said, I found this quote very helpful, that when you are homeless, it's not because you've run out of money, it's because you've run out of friends. If any one of you were in such dire straits that you were going to be homeless, any one of everyone else in here would say, I will take care of you. I'll find you a couch to sleep on. You could have my own bed, right? It, it is when we've run out of people to help us. And, not, and, and that is a, there's many reasons for that too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming anyone who is homeless. I've talked to many who have been in very difficult situations. But that is why the church is supposed to help our brothers. This is a way that God preserves his people. Verse 28 says, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. This is the doctrine of God's perseverance. It applies to many things, one of our troubles in life that we go through, but ultimately it means that God will sustain our faith through every difficulty. A believer may struggle a believer may stumble. A believer may suffer with poverty, pain, or sickness, but they will not ultimately succumb to the lies of the devil. So confident are they with God as their father who provides for them that verse 26 says, he is ever lending generously. His children become a blessing. 
David's calling for open-hearted generosity, like the Philippian church that in the midst of their poverty continued to give to others because they're like, we don't have enough for next week, but we have enough for today and we are gonna give some of what we have, trust in the Lord to provide for us today. Though if you're reading, you might have come across a uh, challenging statement in there. You might have looked at it and said, wait a second, the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Like these poor children, what did, what did they do to deserve being cut off? Now, in poetry, especially wisdom poetry like this, it's helpful, you got to, again, context, so important. Look, so it says here, verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. I'm sorry, verse 28. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. This is connecting with verse 26. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Now, what did those children do to become a blessing? Something, something. They, they, they were able to bless others and be kind to others and giving to others. See, scripture is very clear. Children are not punished for the sins of their parents. Ezekiel 18, 20 says, The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Exodus 18, 20. At the same time, God judges generation upon generation. Exodus 34, 7, God declares himself as one who is keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation they learn and continue to do the evil ways of their parents and they receive the same result. This is the point. God can handle our worries and problems better than we can. And it is very easy that in times of difficulty, especially for the righteous person, when they look and see the unrighteous person being successful, that we become the very problem that we're noticing in others. And we pass this on to the next generation. Think of it this way. You know, um, you know, these cute little koala bears, right? Everyone loves koala bears. They're adorable. And you know what they eat all the time? Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus is poisonous to pretty much all other creatures, but koalas have a special digestive tract that allows them to be able to eat it and they eat nothing else. Problem is, it's a very low in nutrition kind of item. So koalas are very sedentary, lazy creatures. Um, they just sit there and they look adorable, but they don't do much else. Okay. I was reading just this week, research has shown that koalas' insistence upon the eucalyptus leaf is due to an addiction to certain chemicals that they acquire in their mother's milk. Mama eats eucalyptus. Mama nurses baby. Baby becomes addicted to eucalyptus and eats nothing else. Bottle-raised koalas survive and eat other things. And they're much more active 
Don't you think if anyone could choose that and say, give my baby something else, I entrust them to you that they would take that, especially if they knew I'm causing this problem. You know, we, we must watch out in the next generation of the church that we do not give them our idols. It's easy. We can seek our hope and our success from government, from gold, from glory, only things that God can give us. And that is why in verse 27, he says to the righteous people, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. See, right now, we talked about this. The verse one started with this command, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. The righteous is looking at the wrongdoers and saying, this isn't fair. I want that. And a conflict with evil often tempts us to fight the enemy with his own weapons, does it not? There's nothing more normal than fighting fire with fire. But the Lord is on the side of justice. Verse 28. Christians, we are to love those who hate us. The kind of love you extend to an unworthy person. It's easy to love someone who loves you, but someone who is unworthy extending to your enemies, those who make your life difficult, those who make you miserable. If someone scoffs at you for believing in traditional marriage here in America, or, or you say in a conversation around the dinner table, around Thanksgiving, you know, there's only one way to God. All religions do not lead to God. It's easy to be scoffed at, and it's very easy to scoff back. And often what happens is we don't, we're conflict averse, so we, we don't engage there, but later we talk to others about it, whether it is the children of the church or your friends or anybody, and we start to say a way that scoffs at them, mocks them, and we get this idea, oh, they're the problem. They are so bad. And then we start to say, well, but why are they succeeding? Maybe we should learn from our enemies. One of the biggest problems we forget is what verse 24 says. The righteous will fall. We will have moments where our world doesn't go the way it should, where we seem to be failing. There are times when we will sin ourselves. And they'll look at us and go, you're a Christian? A Christian doesn't do that. You go, I know. But God upholds my hand when I sin. And it moves us to turn back to God rather than waiting and say, well, I have to change and put my hope in what the world is doing. See, we're able to do that. We're able to trust him with our life and our decisions and to put the results in his hand, choosing to do good because, fourth, in this psalm, we forget not his promises. We forget not his promises. Verse 30 through 34. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. He steps, do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. 
The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord. Keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. He's saying a lot of the same things again, but this is on purpose. He's repeating and and preaching this self to him. In, In verse 30, he says, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. He is convinced of this truth. No, David was uniquely blessed. He was successful in many military battles. But it's interesting. When you read the book of 1 and 2 Samuel and you read David's life and how he was fleeing for Saul, and you have these miraculous moments where David is about to be captured and God steps in and Saul goes off running. Or El, you know, David is able to come and he stands over Saul's sleeping body with all of his generals asleep and David could kill him right there and he doesn't. David is delivered. And then we read, David runs away from Israel and goes into the land of the Philistines because he is so afraid of Saul killing him. David, what, what do you mean? Did you forget all the ways you have been saved? But, but that is the point he's getting at here is he says, what causes us to slip when we stop uttering wisdom? When we stop remembering the law of God? That word in verse 30, utter, is, is probably maybe all could be translated mumble, It's the same word used in Psalm 1, verse 2, about the righteous man who meditates on the word of the Lord day and night. You could think of it, when you mumble, you're not talking to someone else. I'm not preaching to you in a mumbling voice, but I preach to myself in a mumbling voice. I often go, Bogstead, because I refer to myself as Bogstead, because that's what my dad referred to me as. I I don't know why, but that's, but someone's like, my, my kids were like, do you say Pastor Chris? I'm like, no, I say Bogstead. Um, and I'm like, okay, so I talk to myself. I'm like, Bogstead, you, you're doing this again. Remember, right? This is the idea. The law of God is constantly on the righteous's mind. He's preaching it to himself. He's proclaiming the truth. If There is one person that the world wants to say is out of control and is a problem. It is the young single man. Sorry, guys. You know, I I know it actually has historically been a problem. Young single men have gone to fight in wars and caused wars and have been rambunctious over the centuries. It is a ongoing problem. And yet Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, that's not saying only young men. It's just the idea of saying even a young man can be pure by guarding his way according to God's word. Psalm 119, verse 9. Young men can be pure. They can do well. They can overcome the wickedness of others or the wickedness of their own heart by dwelling on the law of God. Because verse 32 does say, there are attacks of the wicked. The, um, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. 
Sometimes it comes with direct punches, looking for opportunities and ways to seek and to destroy, but at times it's with persuasion, temptation. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, we read about one example where he says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. See, those people in Proverbs 1 are trying to convince the son. They're trying to convince him and say, let's get easy money. And here he's warning the same thing. Watch out for the unrighteous ways that will say, it'll be easy. Just do what they're doing and you'll have the same success. Instead, the Lord will not abandon the righteous man to his power, verse 33, or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Instead, verse 34, wait for the Lord, keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look when the wicked are cut off. What is the command Wait. Justice must come on God's perspective of time. As I know, so often we're like, this isn't working. Look at what's happening in the world. There's problems. And he says, wait. The results are sure. See, a Christian can stand and wait when we remember his promises, when we forget not his promises, and we continue to preach them to ourselves. Uh, this psalm is a wisdom song, much like this one. You might remember this. Oh, careful little eyes what you see. Oh, careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's a, it's a lesson, isn't it? It's a warning. It's trying to tell us, be careful, Remember, the Lord is there, and he's caring for you. Watch out what you allow into your eyes, into your ears, and into your mind. In the same way, this psalm is saying, be careful where your mind goes. Be aware and bring it back to the word of God. The word wait and talks about rest throughout here doesn't mean inactivity. It refers to an inner silence or tranquility before the Lord. When you quietly go about your daily activities, even when it's hard, and you feel the weight and burden of the world and of your own sin and your failures, and you just say, I'm just going to keep being faithful to do today's activities. You avoid the temptation of complacency or going ahead of what God commands. See, too often, we are listening to ourselves rather than speaking to ourselves. The Psalms constantly tell us this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, said, take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. 
go to Psalm 42, where he literally says, he says to his soul, hope in God instead. We must realize that sin creates desires in us that are opposed to God's will. And so to delight in the Lord is to stop and consider, what does the Lord want me to do? What is the good? What is the truth of his word that I must preach to myself? As the quote from your bulletin says this morning, Tim Chester talks about looking at the world and all they have and all they value. And he says, instead, we need to stop adopting the lifestyle of the word around us. What Jesus calls running after the things the pagan world runs after. We refuse to be shaped by the values of the world. And we be shaped by the values of God. That is the way we change. We don't want what they want. So think, brothers and sisters. What are the ways you are tempted? What are the ideas that pull you, that are contrary to the ways of God? And then you must think, and this is something you can talk to others about. Sometimes we can. We, we should never be ashamed to say, you know, I'm tempted in this regard. I'm looking at this, and I, and I feel my soul drawn to it. Help me think, what does the Bible say that's different? We can talk with one, and we have to dwell and find specific truths. We have to mumble those truths to ourselves again and again. I was just reading the other day about how often it comes to, as a parent in the world, in my own soul, there's this desire that my children would show me off, would show how great a father I am because of them being so wonderful. And you say, no, instead, God has designed parenting and children to express our weakness so that he would be strong. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your business success and you want to show what great you are as a Christian because you're not one of those Christians that doesn't do a good job, but you could fall into idolatry of work. Or maybe it's being funny where you're like, I don't want to be one of those Christians that's not funny, that can't tell a joke, and yet your humor is shaped by the world's humor. Or values, success, comforts, whatever it may be, think. And instead, apply what are the opposite thoughts that must be added. David wonderfully finishes this psalm by summarizing everything that he said for us. He brings it all back in a nice little package to remind us, fifth, what do you have to do when it comes to the end? Trust in God's plan. Just trust in what God is doing. Verses 35 through 40. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. He passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless. Behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and he delivers them. 
He delivers them from the wicked and he saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 35, or Psalm 37, 35 through 40. Trust in God's plan. Once again, in verse 30, um, 35, David is reflecting on the appearance of the wicked. We talked about this last time, but Psalm 1-3, at the beginning of the Psalms, says that the, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is the, the great person. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff the wind drives away. David is saying, but wait, I see the wicked man. He is a ruthless man, not just wicked. He is horrible to everyone and he is up and he is spreading himself. He is showing himself to look like that blessed man in Psalm 1. He is successful. He is wealthy. He is considered wise. They're strong. They're growing. They have the riches, the success, the praise, the political victories, the perfect family Christmas photos, right? You're like, what? My photos never come out that way. He has everything. Because of sin, Wisdom does not always work right away in this world. Because of sin, God's promises always happen, but at times they will appear like they're not working for a while. But what happens to him? Verse 36, he passed away. Behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. They're gone. They're destroyed, and their memory is lost. The great kingdoms of Alexander the Great dispersed among his children, among his generals, and then conquered by another nation. There is sure judgment to come in this life or in the life to come. This psalm ends with calm objectivity. It began with a warning. Don't fret. Don't desire what the wicked have. And it ends with an objective statement of saying, of course. This is the long game. Look at the blessed, the blameless, and the transgressors and seize what happens, what happens to them. Mark the blameless. Behold the upright. For there is a future for that man of peace, but the transgressor shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. Verse 40 returns this idea of God helps those who help themselves. He says, the Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The promise is not get it right, figure it out. 
but it is those who admit to Yahweh they cannot help themselves, so they seek his help. This is the whole gospel. You cannot do enough to outweigh your sin. You cannot do enough to outweigh the things that you have done wrong or the things that you have wanted wrong. To do so actually belittles the one you have wronged, including God. Could you imagine the great painful sins of lying, breaking a marriage promise, of rape, of murder, and someone's like, well, let me just pay you. Here's a million dollars. You're like, thanks, but that doesn't solve anything, right? And, and at times we as human beings think that we're offering God great wealth and millions of dollars to pay off our sin. But really, the Bible says all our righteous deeds are like rags, trash. We're giving him our refuse and trying to impress him with it. And he says, no, that does nothing for me. I don't need your trash. And it definitely doesn't satisfy all the wrongs you have done. Instead, God solved the problem by giving the greatest cost he could, the blood of his son. Jesus Christ came and lived this perfect life, the life we're supposed to live. He died unjustly on the cross, not just by man, but by God. And he rose again this third day, dying in our place, proving his power over death itself so that we can say, God, I think you can handle my problems when you've dealt with death. Follow him because he is worthy. See, this psalm shows us the need to trust God even when things look shaky for a while. Augustine, the great um, pastor, philosopher, professor, theologian of North Africa, famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And it's a good reminder that if our hearts are not resting in God and his promises and looking to him for help, you know what they're, they're going to try and do? Find the rest somewhere else. We're always looking for something to rest in. And so we must rest in God. The first stage is to decide, what kind of life do I want to live? In, in reality, we don't always decide this. We, we often mimic the values of our wor world. We're like fish swimming in the sea that we're like, of course, this is what we're supposed to do. There's nothing so sweet. I love many of you talking to you who were born in other countries, even other parts of this country at times too. And, and you come here and you're like, California is weird. Like, why, why do you do this? Um, Americans are weird. Why is this important to you? And we're like, what do you mean? Of course that's important. Like, oh. And as Christians, we could think, oh, of course. But that's the values of the world. And this is the truth. If you are not discipled by the church and by God's word, you'll be discipled by Fox News or Twitch or movies or books or your work culture or somewhere will disciple you. 
No matter how conservative or traditional they are, they will teach you the values of the world. They will become then anxious when the world has what the world wants, right? You're like, but I want that. Oh, wait, I'm not supposed to want that. Instead, we must turn our eyes back to God's truth and delight in him. We, we've seen this shift. When you see what the world has and you're like, I want that and I'm getting upset, we school your desires to match God's good plan. You highlight the end of the two paths, so you might notice it. In his hands, place the results. Forget not the promises he gives and then trust his plan. I don't know about you, sometimes when I read through these psalms and I hear a sermon like this, I start to go, oh, wait. Maybe this is me. Or maybe it's a situation, a trial God brings you. Uh, recently, I went down to the Aliso Creek Beach and, and I saw the parking lot and the sidewalk torn up like this. It was broken down. The ground was smashed. You could see the, the, um, the roots of the trees were exposed because we had a little tsunami in the Pacific Ocean. And we had high tide and great waves rushed all the way up to the parking lot and cracked it. And the foundation was exposed because there were weaknesses underneath that sidewalk and parking lot. If you go down there, they're still trying to fix it up. Those big gray boulders they put in there to try and keep people safe from all the destruction. And there is nothing like losing something which reveals where we've wrongly put our trust and our hope. There's nothing like anxiety growing up inside of us that we're like, oh, there's something wrong with me. I have put my trust in an idol. In the Bible, an idol is any object that takes the emotional and practical place of God in our life. God's loving purpose behind every trial, every temptation, every difficulty is to show you he is enough. If you would only wait and trust in him. It might not come quickly. It might not come easily, but it will come. And so he says, delight yourself in me and I will give you the desires of your heart because you will want me and God always gives himself. We must put our delight in him. I'm gonna pray. I'd ask everyone who's involved in the baptism to please come up while I'm praying and afterwards you can get ready uh, and then we'll sing while they are preparing. Oh God in heaven, please allow us to find joy and delight in you instead. Purify us of the idols which so easily distract and destroy. Oh Lord, may we consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds, for we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance and it will make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May we hold to that promise, Lord, and may we believe it's not because of us, it's because of you. We ask this, Lord, to the praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.